0: Plus, woman say to me, you know, I've been at Hebron Church for 40 years, and this month I'm more excited than ever to gather and to give and to serve. Then I got an email from a precious brother in Christ this week who said that in his opinion, he's in his 50s, said that this, in his opinion, is the best thing we've ever done in ministry. And uh, I agree with that. And then seeing all these teenagers with their blue shirts on, Beyond, and then seeing Chuck Trends, Chuck's great. He's got a great sense of humor. He said, I'm a billboard for Beyond. (laughs) So today we talk about Gather. We're doing it, talking about it. I'm going to continue to do it throughout the month. Let's turn to a familiar text, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, if you have a Bible, you'll notice that you probably have a footnote there. This region is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It could be called the land of the Gergesenes, the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes. We'll call it the Gerasenes because that's how Mark refers to it. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he always cried out, cutting himself with stones. out of the country. Now a giant herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged Jesus saying, "Send us into the pigs, let us enter them." So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herds, numbering about 2000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Years ago at a hospital in New York City, a woman who Time Magazine called America's Queen of Opera gave birth to her first child, a little girl. In the first few moments of her life, she looked perfect. Had all of her toes and fingers. She tested well, but within a few months, there were signs that she had problems. And within ten months, she was diagnosed with total hearing loss. She'd never hear her mother's voice. She'd never hear her mother sing. Within months of that diagnosis... America's queen of opera gave birth to her second child, a little boy. But unlike his sister, it took 10 months to diagnose. As soon as the doctor saw this baby, this little boy, they knew his problem. He was severely Down syndrome. Within the space of two years, this woman gave birth to two very needy children. You know what she did? She quit singing. She said, there's no way I can practice. There's no way I can perform. I need to spend time with my children and with God asking him why. Eleven months later, she was back on stage. And according to all of the critics, her voice was stronger. Her music was more vivid. It was more colorful. She had never sung like this before, and they marveled at her. And the second night of her performance, at the end of the performance, a good friend of hers came to her in the dressing room and said, Beverly, how is it that you're singing now more vividly than ever when you have two such needy children? Beverly Sills turned to her friend and said, it's easy the first thought you have is, why me? But then if you're honest with yourself and with God, the question changes from why me to why them. And that makes all the difference in the world. Four weeks ago, we listened to Paul speaking to a king of Judea by the name of Agrippa. And as he speaks to Agrippa, we see that Paul is gripped with boldness. And he says to the king, There was a day in which I, accompanying my friends, my soldiers, were on the way to Damascus. And Jesus struck me off my horse. And as I lay there on my back, I called out, Who are you, Lord? And immediately Jesus said, I am Jesus Whom you are persecuting, now get up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a messenger of all that you have seen of me and all that you will see from me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what Jesus is going to say. To this formerly demonized man, I have one purpose, and that is that you might be appointed as my servant and witness of all that you've seen of me and all that I will show you of me. You know, from the second century, the commentators in the church have called Mark "stumpy fingers." The gospel writer of Mark, they call him stumpy fingers. I could give you the Greek, but I forget it. It means he is so incredibly brief, he only gives us the little facts, but he doesn't elaborate. He's kind of like the Calvin Coolidge of gospel writers. One time our 30th president was at a dinner party and a woman leaned over to him and said, you know, Mr. President, I have a bet with my husband that I can get you to speak more than two words to me. He looked her in the eye and said, you lose. And he didn't speak to her for the rest of the night. Now that's a lot like Mark. Of all the gospel writers, he's the briefest. When you come to the gospel of Mark, you see no infant narratives of Jesus. There's no record of his birth. You don't see the Sermon on the Mount there. You don't see the Sermon on the Plain there. you Don't see some of the miracles that are contained in the other Gospels. You don't see some of the parables. But you know what's amazing to me? When you come to this story of this demonized man, Mark spends more time on it than any of the other Gospel writers. Now, if you are a little anal like I can be from time to time, you could go back and do the math too. And you will find that Mark spends 3% of his Gospel on this story. I mean, 3% on this story. And that begs the question, why? This guy who's so brief, who's so taciturn, a guy that doesn't say much, why would he spend all this time, a third, uh, 3% of his gospel on this story? And I think I know the answer. Because this story, what happens on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, is a perfect portrait of Jesus' principal purpose. And that is to gather. Jesus' main purpose is to gather others to himself. And you know something? If you're a Christian here, that's your principal purpose too. To gather others to Christ just as Jesus does. This story is all about it. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the place. Look at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now only three times in all of Jesus' three-year ministry does he take his disciples on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. All of the rest of his ministry is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And there are many who want to talk about this account. And they begin in chapter 4 with the great storm. You see, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. And on the way, there's a huge storm. And Jesus is asleep in in the boat. And the disciples are so fearful, they wake him up. And they say, Jesus, don't you care if we die? And there are many commentators that spend a lot of time on the geography. You know, in this lake that is not an oval, but it's more kind of rectangular north to south, in the northern region there are mountains, and the air is cooler there, and occasionally if the wind patterns are right, that cool air comes down over the lake, and warm air comes up from the south, and they collide, and they form incredible storms. They come up instantly, and they're often raging. And so there are commentators that talk about that. They talk about meteorology. They talk about weather patterns. But today I don't care anything about that. I want to talk about the purpose of the storm. What is the purpose for this storm? Now think about this. In chapter 4, Jesus is on the western side of this sea. And he's teaching Jews primarily People who have the benefit of the temple of God, in the presence of God there. People that have the benefit of hearing the law, hearing the prophets, hearing the writings. These are people who are enmeshed in the things of God. And Mark tells us that he teaches them all day And when night comes, he says to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. This is the first time of three times he takes them across the lake. And what happens is they begin to traverse the lake, the sea. A great storm comes up. Now to the Jew, the sea always represented one thing. And you need to see this about the sea. The sea always means separation. The sea was a place of foreboding danger. The sea was a place of mystery. The sea was the place that separated people from each other, and often this was the, the sea was the place that separated a man and a woman from his own or her own life. Very dangerous place. That's why Jesus says, when we get to heaven, there'll be no more sea. What's he mean? No more separation. Jesus isn't against sand and waves. It's the separation that we'll be missing. No separation between men and women and God. No separation between the chosen of God and each other. But here on the western side of the shore, after teaching these Jews all day, these religious people, Jesus says to his disciples, let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea, a place you've never been, a place where there's no synagogue, there's no temple, there's no Torah, there's no word of God, there's no knowledge of God. Let's go over to this dark spiritual place where there's worship of creatures rather than the Creator. Let's go over there. And I love what the King James Version says. As they were taking shipping... A great storm arose, and they were terrified. Now remember, four of them are commercial fishermen. Four of them have spent their life on this water with their father. Four of them would have been in many, many storms, but this storm is incredibly different. They are terrified. They are panicked. I want you to think about a parallel here. Between the intensity of this storm to get the disciples to panic, fear for their lives, and the intensity of the storm of demons in this man that will cause all of these foreigners to be scared to death of him. Do you see this? Now, Peter is the source for Mark's gospel. And what Peter wants us to see is there is a parallel between the storm on the sea and the storm in this demonized man. And the parallel is the power at work in both places, and that's the power of Satan. And there's only one who can conquer the power of Satan, and he's the one who speaks to the wind, and he's the one that speaks to the demons and says, be still. Then, second, notice the person. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs who had an unclean spirit. Now, Luke gives us a couple of additional details. First of all, Luke tells us that the man is, as Jimmy Swaggert would say, naked, naked, no clothes on, he's got nothing to hide. And then I love what Luke says. He doesn't live in a house. He lives among the tombs. But Mark is the one who gives us the most detail. It's probably because Peter is the source. And the first thing Mark tells us is, this man cannot be bound with chains of iron. He snaps his chains. They've tried to bind him because they're scared to death of him. But he snaps chains and then mark says night and day as he lived among the tombs on the mountains he would cry out and cut himself with stones bloodletting now what is peter telling us here he's giving us a perfect illustration of the perfect end of the perfect man The Greeks were the ones who said the highest form of beauty is the human body. So this guy is completely naked. His body is right there to be seen. The Greeks were the ones that invented the gymnasium. For what purpose? So that the bodies would get stronger. How strong is he? He's strong enough that he can break iron chains. The Greeks said that the gods live in the mountains. So where did this man live? Among the false gods. The Greeks said there is one most important creature in all of creation, and that is the individual. They championed the individual. And so what about this guy? He's all alone. He's among the, the tombs on the mountains. You see this? He is the personification of the human atlas. He's the per- personification of the strongest, most beautiful, most isolated and independent, most godlike figure. And what's Peter tell us? He is totally demonized. He's raging mad. The end of the human potential is nothing but bondage. And he knows no peace He knows no wholeness. He is completely terrorized by demons. And then third, notice the proclamation, verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Now, for a lot of generations, commentators have said, this is the first person, first human being, in all of the Gospels, to identify Jesus Christ for who He is. And that's true. The first man to identify Jesus properly is a demonized man. But I want you to know, he does more than identify Jesus. He identifies Jesus' mission. He not only says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He also says, I beg you, don't torture me. Because he knows that when Jesus shows up in a person's life, he won't allow them to be in bondage. He'll take their bondage, he'll take their chains, and he himself will snap them. And the way he does that is by gathering people to himself. Shines his light of truth into our darkness. Darkness. You see, this man, this demonized man, understands Jesus' purpose better than anybody on the western side of the lake. He knows Jesus' one purpose is to gather people to himself and bring to them a sense of belonging, wholeness, shalom. Now, last week, if you were here, you heard Tom Hughes preach from Southern California. It seems like the further away the person comes, the more they have to say Great message, if you haven't heard it, get the podcast, if you have, do it again. It's a perfect setup to this month and all that God's called us to do and to be. And you may remember that Tom told the story about he and Allison, his wife and kids, that live next door to an Armenian family. And this family, the guy is a doctor at UCLA, and his wife is Armenian, And Allison and Tom began to pray for these people that they would come to know Christ. And Tom said, for months, nothing seemed to happen. And then one day, Tom's at school picking up one of his kids, and she's there picking up one of her kids, and she asked Tom the $50,000 question that all ministers hate to get, what do you do? And he said, the reason I hate that is because half the people will hate you, half the people will love you. I'd say it's more than half that hate you. So Tom answered truthfully, I'm the pastor of a local church. And she said, I knew it. I had a dream. And in that dream, an angel type being came to me and said, for me and my family to stay close to you and you would lead us to God. And within weeks, she came to acknowledge Christ as her Lord and Savior. and She was baptized. All through a dream. And remember, Tom said, you know, I didn't do much, but say I'm a minister, and then God did it all. Now, I want you to know that's not an isolated story. A couple years ago, I was in Atlanta, and I heard the senior minister of a church in Cairo, Egypt, say that the Lord spoke to their leadership to begin to pray for Muslims in that city and around Cairo. Eight million people, most Muslim. And he said, and the leader said to the Lord, how do you want us to pray? And he said, we believe that God told us to pray that these Muslims would have visions. See, the Muslims believe in visions. They believe they have visions. So God said, pray that they have visions of Jesus. And so they began to pray that these Muslims would get visions of Jesus. He said for a couple of weeks, nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, they'd come like by 20s and 30s to the church And they'd all say the same thing to him and other people. They said, We had this vision of this guy. He looks like this. And then the minister would show him a picture. Yeah! Who is he? Can you tell us about him? And they told people about Jesus, and those people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized. Now, think of this man on the eastern side of the sea. He lives in a place where there's no temple, no synagogue. No Torah being read, no writings, no prophets being read. The things of God are lost on them. Total darkness, no sermon, nothing. And Jesus said, or Mark tells us when Jesus lands, the man runs up and falls on his knees before him and pleads with him as Jesus, son of the most high God, the same title that Lucifer wanted to take for himself. And what does Jesus do? He speaks, the demons flee, and the man is freed. And then fourth, notice the proclamation. Look at verse 19b. After delivering him from the demons, Jesus said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Now think of the mercy Jesus has had on this man. He's opened his blind eyes. He's delivered him from 6,000 demons. He's broken the chains that shackled his heart and his soul. He's ended his separation. He's done exactly what the prophet Isaiah said Jesus would do. He would proclaim the acceptable year of God's favor. He's granted him mercy. That's the same word that we saw two weeks ago in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember at the end, Jesus says to the teacher of the law, now who was the neighbor to this man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer, the teacher of the law said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now the word there, mercy, is elios. It literally means several things. Tenderness, compassion, The ability to come alongside one and feel their own pain. And it also means to get into one's space and exhibit there God's grace. Now, the only real good Samaritan is Jesus. He's the one that proves himself to be a neighbor to the man in the ditch. Jesus is a neighbor to this guy on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He delivers him from his isolation. He says to him, go home to your friends and tell them everything God's done for you and all the mercy God has shown on you. Now, I've got a question. Who are his friends? I mean, the guy has been in the tombs and on the mountains, naked, unboundable. Is that a word? Who are his friends? I mean, we don't know how long he's been in this condition, but 6,000 demons. And Jesus says, go home. Now, remember what the guy asked. Can I go with you? Jesus said, no, you go home. You go home and tell everyone. Who are your friends? The same ones who are your neighbors. Everyone. Everyone you see. Everyone in the village, everyone in the country, everyone you meet, you tell them everything that God has done for you and the mercy he's shown you. You see, Beverly Sills is right. Everything changes in your life when you go from why me to why them. And Jesus knows it. What did he call Paul to do? I've knocked you off your horse for one reason. That you will be mine. You will be my servant and my messenger. And I want you to go and tell others what you've seen of me and what I will show you. What's he say to this guy? You can't come with me. I want you to go home to your friends. And I want you to do these things. I want you to tell them what God has done for you. And I want you to tell them... All the mercy God has had on you. What you've seen of me. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're a Christian, that's exactly Jesus' purpose in your life. His purpose in your life and my life is that he might show us mercy for one reason. That we might go to our neighbors, to our friends, to those that don't even know us and show them what Jesus has done for us and then allow us to show them where he is. Whether it's a can or a diaper or a toy or hard candy, that's our purpose. It's not to go to them to show them how great we are because we ain't. It's to go to them with cans and diapers and toys and candy and money and say to them, you are significant to us. But more importantly than that, you're significant to Jesus. Now, can we show you where he is? You see, Jesus is all about gathering. Gathering others, not simply to a church church, not simply to a body of believers, but most importantly, to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so this week, if you haven't brought diapers and cans and toys and all that, do it. If you have, do it more. So that others might see, wow, is Jesus something? That's our goal. May we do it. In his name, amen.